Welcome to Postwave. You're here with Eric and Trevor, and today we're talking about Plato, his theory of ideas, his idea of the Republic, and the ideal structure for society. So, Trevor, which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Let's find out. Well, actually, uh, <laughs> actually, neither of them came first because the chicken evolved from something that wasn't a chicken. So, no. actually, I think that I, I think the egg came first because uh, the egg was probably originally a reptile egg, and there wasn't a chicken yet. And then the way to dodge the question. Good job. Good job. <laughs> so. Uh... This is this is a question that I think we'll get back to later in the discussion, um, because today we're talking about Plato's theory of ideas, and uh, one of the points that I want to get to is the way Plato seemed to believe that the ideas we understand and perceive are somehow truer, more real than the physical world uh, that we see with our imperfect senses, and. Uh, furthermore, that this reality is eternal and unchanging. And so there's this sort of concept that ideas exist and they are real and they exist and have always existed. Yeah, and it's interesting to ask whether there is any analog to that that we can find in modern day conce conceptions of physics right and whether whether these ideas that are like thousands of years old map onto that in, in some way yeah interesting um so there's so many different branches of thought that have originated from this one inquiry back uh, in ancient greece and his idea is that ideological world is the only world by which we can derive meaning what do you think of this idea it's interesting because I mean, you know, there's, there's a very common saying that, you know, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't approach your life hedonistically. Like the, the important things are, are intangible. Right. Um, mm. And, but, but I think, I don't know, it seems like taking it that far that, that like the, what, what did you say exactly? The only meaning can come from these, these mm. forms. Ideas. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I, don't know, I feel like that's taking it a little bit, a little bit too 
bar a little bit making it a little bit too abstract interesting so i want to i want to throw a thought experiment your way um so squirrels cute little guys huh no <laughs> <laughs> this has been post wave um, <laughs> okay uh so squirrels um there is animals that run around climb up trees and stuff we love them they seem to share characteristics more or less between all squirrels they have big bushy tail but buck teeth they uh like to eat nuts and so each individual squirrel what does that have in common with every other squirrel dna they all have like fur <laughs> uh bullshit <they're>... answer <laughs> <laughs> okay let... they all, they're all sharing the same collective squirrel soul of uh <laughs> there we go uh, okay let me ask you a different question then what differentiates that squirrel from the pile of leaves next to it i just want to give all very like scientific answers to all these questions but i know that's not what you're looking for no use your fucking noggin <laughs> wait use use my noggin or don't don't use it <laughs> do whatever you want <laughs> Well, I mean, so so the, the squirrel is something that's been imbued with goals and desires and some kind of purpose because it, you know, it wants to eat and reproduce and not die. And so it's it's developed all these tools to for it to be able to do that, you know, over over millions of years. Hmm. Wow. Uh, so, so you're saying basically at its core is its ability, its drive to desire that differentiates itself? Yeah, yeah, because life in general has the drive to reproduce and and move forward in time, right? And that's what mm. we have to thank for all of the biodiversity we see. It's just that impulse, you know? That's a really interesting thought. That's really cool. Um, now, a minute ago, you said imbued as if some external thing imbued it with that quality. How did it? How did it become imbued with this desire? Well, it just kind of goes back to DNA, which is what imbued it with, with all those, all those desires. So, uh, before the first day, God created DNA. There, there's nothing, and then and then God created DNA, and then where did the, where did the DNA come from? Well, it's a that's a good question. <laughs> we, don't, we don't we don't know yet, but I mean. We, we think it has something to do with, you know, these amino acids that are just floating around lots of places in space and the right conditions with liquid water and maybe electricity and, and hydrothermal vents, maybe some kind of magical conditions that created the, like the first self-replicating, replicating molecule. And then after that, mm. it just, it was just evolution. Assuming, I mean, so, we, we, and we don't know whether it happened once or multiple times or anything like that, but that's the general story. Hmm, interesting. So basically, it just happened. Is your answer? Yeah, that's that's like a thing that the universe does in hmm. in certain conditions. Interesting, interesting. It's an interesting question about DNA because we could take it from a different angle. Looking at DNA, what what does DNA represent 
that causes it to want to self-replicate. That is really interesting. And that's really interesting because at bottom DNA is just information, right? It's just these base pairs. Mm. There's only, there's only four, right? And it's just this pattern of, of switches basically that are able to encode information. And that, that's a big part of it. That's a really interesting perspective. So information, I, I, I think I want to make a distinction here because if you're starting with it just happened because of random matter floating around, um, then at its core from that perspective at its base level is not information. It's just particles that happened to align in a certain way. Well, it's, uh, well, it, it is, it is information. I mean, I think this is something that Stephen Wolfram has talked about. I mean, everyone's kind of familiar with the idea of the heat death of the universe, right? Or most people probably. And mm -hmm. I think people kind of get the idea or assume that at the end there's like nothing happening and there's no information, but he was mm -hmm. making the point that actually it's just incredibly complex. Like the, the information has reached its, its full level of complexity at the time of the heat death of the universe. There's still, there are still things happening, but uh, it, it, there's still some kind of information there from, from what I understand. And I think it's kind of, kind of the same way. I mean, there's not really anything that's like random about the way particles are floating around. I mean, it's all, it's still all obeying physics and, you know, whether at bottom the, the quantum physics are, are some kind of probabilistic random thing. Uh, the, the, the motion of all these particles is still kind of at its base, uh, mostly deterministic or in, it's, you know, carrying some kind of information. It's not completely, it's not completely void of information just because it's, it's so chaotic, you know? Hmm. So my question comes back then, um, I had asked you before what makes the squirrel different than the, the, the pile of carbon next to it. And you said that it's the, it's desire, it's drive. And I asked what gave it that desire, what gave it, uh, that sense of purpose. And you said DNA. And now my question comes right back again and it says, what gives DNA or random particles floating around information? What imbues them with the quality that we call information? I mean, I'm tempted to say just that, I mean, you, you know, it, it kind of gets to be the, the, you just keep asking why and eventually you don't know, but like, because of the, the, the nature of the universe and the laws of physics we have, there is this thing called information. Um, mm. and it's not just this like featureless plane. Okay. So, well, <laughs> so going back all the way to the beginning, the, the reason we have any structure at all in the universe, right. Is because there was this imbalance between antimatter and matter that happened when the universe, uh, formed from the big bang. Mm. Um, because if there was equal amounts, matter and antimatter, everything would have just canceled itself out. Right. Mm. Um, and we don't see, you know, we don't see things uniformly distributed. It's very clumpy. It's mostly empty space. And so, so that, that helped create the, the preconditions for a thing like information existing. Interesting. So what is information is information itself matter or is it an idea? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, 
Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to these thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it depends what you mean by an idea. So, I mean, it just makes me think mm. of, you know, it, it kind of just makes me think of the, the, the quantum wave theory of reality. I know there's like a more accurate term for that, but the, the, the theory that basically every object has its own quantum wave function and the universe itself has mm. a quantum wave function, right? Like that's what mm. it is at bottom, we think. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so that, I guess, would be considered pure information or something. It's not, it's not like the matter itself even though the matter is a expression of that. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. So this is, this is really, really cool. And uh, it, it's just so telling that this idea two and a half thousand years ago could inspire so much heated debate and thought uh, even in the present, like all these ideas are our most sophisticated models of how the, how the universe is structured and at its core is basically just, I don't know, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the answer to this question that Plato asked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there will, there will pretty much always be limits on human knowledge. Uh, mm. pr probably even in the face of, of super intelligent AI, but it needs to be, mm. needs to be seen. Yeah. So uh, limits to knowledge is a good segue into talking about Plato's myth of the cave. Is this something that you've heard of before? Yeah, definitely. Mm. So it's it's kind of the the idea is that there are these prisoners shackled in a cave and they're facing the the cave wall, right? They can't see outside. And all mm. they know of the outside world is the shadows they see on the cave wall as things pass by the opening of the cave, right? Yeah. What does this speak to to you? What is what is the meaning in this in this myth? Well, it's kind of, it kind of gets to the fact that we're, we become so used to the idea that what we see around us is reality with our senses, right? That, that is, that is what reality is. It's, and it's not, it's not like the shadows on the cave wall, right? Um, it, what we see in reality is, you know, fully featured and tangible and has lots of these, you know, rich characteristics, but at bottom there has to be you know something underneath it and we know now that it's atoms and and like electron clouds and all this crazy mm. quantum stuff that's happening uh which we cannot see at all like we we just because of the nature of our of our biology we just can't observe things at that level unless we have instruments right mm. and even those aren't you know those aren't perfect either i think mm. i think so if people are familiar with the the Bohr model, the, the atom, I think uh, Niels Bohr's son had, has said basically that any kind of visual model of the atom that you try to build isn't actually what's there. Like it's all just math at the bottom. There's not mm. really any way getting around the fact that it's just math. Wow, I love that. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, this this poses an, an interesting point though because the concept of the atom actually existed before Plato, and he was well familiar with it. Um, so the natural philosophers that came before him were kind of playing with this idea, what is the underlying substance of the universe? Um, and there had been di various different theories thrown around, like it's air or it's fire and air 
mm-hmm. or something like that, or it's all, all of the four elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, eventually someone came up with the idea you could divide the universe into fixed unit pieces, these indivisible atoms um, that at a certain point you couldn't divide them anymore. And the, the reason for this line of inquiry was because uh, it was exploring the concept of how things can change and yet also remain the same. How, how, how does that, how do those two things connect? If you look at the world, there are things that from our perspective any would, a, anyway would seem to be always the same. The, uh, the fact that we exist at all because at a certain level, the fact that you exist does imply that existence is eternal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the concept of we has to change over time. You know, the physical, uh, our experience of the world has to evolve to become incomprehensible to our previous selves. Mm. The, the form of the, the world, because we're, we're always decaying, we're always changing, evolving. And so you need a way to reconcile the fact that things are always changing, and yet things are always here. Yeah, it's kind of, it, it just reminds me of, you know, the way your body is, whatever the number is, hundreds of billions or trillions of cells. At it, but yet it seems like this very constant thing that's always, that's always there, right? And it's it's this kind of one unified thing that that changes you know, slightly over time, but the the there's a continuity there, right? Totally, yeah. And so the idea of the atom help, help hopes to solve this by saying, is they're basically like Lego bricks, you know? While at the core of things, things don't change, uh, that's still how we can perceive things to be changing because the arrangement of them is changing. And so so Plato knew about this, and it didn't satisfy him uh, because he thought from the other angle that, as you were just saying, there's something about everything conceptually that exists, even as the matter that constructs those things changes, the ideas that the matter represents persist. And the example is, of course, you, your body, even though you're all the atoms that make you up uh, are changed and recycled constantly, there's still something about you that's you now or 20 years from now. Right, right. And yeah, th- and this, this makes me think a lot about you know, Buddhist, various Buddhist philosophies about the the nature of the self and that being an illusion, and uh, you know the, the realization that you're completely continuous with the the total energy system of the cosmos, as Alan Watts would put it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, but despite that, yeah, there is a there is a, a meaningful way in which you as a person are something that is distinct from the rest of the world. Uh, but I think, I think a lot of it, um, I think a lot of it has to do with vision and how tied we are to our, to our vision in in terms of understanding the world, you know? Mm. And I think the fact that air is transparent and just seems to not exist is, is kind of a, a thing that makes it easier to, to feel like we are, you know, 
independent or unconnected from the rest of the world like because mm. yeah it, it it kind of creates the sense that there are these like separate objects that don't touch hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey. and that they're, we're just all in this like sea of gas mm. and weirdest mm-hmm. things that have like coalesced out of it briefly yeah <laughs> Is basically like an accident of the fact that we happen to be animals, yeah, as opposed to some other biological form, like say uh, a super intelligent tree or ecosystem of trees representing some sort of uh, hive intelligence might have an entirely different experience of the world. Yeah, yeah, totally. The roots are like intertwined with the earth. So uh, going back to the uh, idea of the squirrel then, with Plato's theory of ideas, he would say that the thing about the squirrel that makes it distinct from the pile of leaves next to it is these ideological attributes about the squirrel. It is, you know, it's the, it's the, the shape of it, the drives of it, the things that make it unique from everything else. Mm-hmm. And that this, this ideal, this ideal squirrel that can never exist in the physical world does exist truly and perpetually in the world of ideas. So when you say the world of ideas, do you imagine that it's a, like if you traveled in every direction in the universe at once for an infinite amount of time at the speed of light, (laughs) would you eventually find this world of ideas or is it like, is it in some other dimension or is it just completely conceptual or something or what exactly that that it's uh so so the way plato envisioned it was that it's a second world uh or or rather that it's the first world the the true world in the realm of conception that it doesn't have a physical incarnation and that this physical world that we're stuck in here is merely a shadow cast from that perfect world of ideas yeah yeah i was listening to the philosopher david chalmers talk about the kind of the nature of reality and information and everything recently and he was he was saying that he's not really satisfied with the idea that at at the base level reality is just math it's just you know algorithms and relationships mm. but maybe i mean that it's it, he, he admits it to, it's totally possible that that's just our our ape brains being biased you know we, we need to ask the question but like what what are these referring to what are these these ideas referring to what are these forms referring to but at the, at, at the bottom level it's just it's just that it's just the forms it's just the mathematics of everything right so then that that leads us to the question about the, the physical world then why why are we in this world where it seems like everything is imperfect why is it impossible for the platonic ideal squirrel not to exist in my backyard <laughs> you know so, so we've got like these differences uh between the platonic ideal and the the actual squirrel so-called imperfections right that like maybe this one's tail isn't quite as bushy or it's missing a claw so it's not a perfect representation of what a squirrel is but more more or less, it still reflects that. <laughs> so why, Trevor? Why is it like that? Why can't we live in the platonic ideal world? Uh, 
I mean, <laughs> I I always feel like my answers are way more like sciencey than you're asking for. But um, okay, but, okay. But, the, the the reason the reason I'm asking that is because I don't I don't think there's an answer. Like, like yeah. I, I don't expect you to have an answer. Okay, <laughs> but if you do have one, I would love to hear it. Okay, well, because the 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 pl- platonic ideal world doesn't support real sensory systems like inf- information processing systems as far as we can tell i mean maybe mm. maybe there are beings that can exist in that in that realm that are conscious but from what we can tell it doesn't isn't seem like it mm. you know ah but plato would say but aren't your senses imperfect isn't it true that every thing that you know about the world is filtered through this physical system of your eyes and your ears and because they themselves are made of the same imperfect flesh as the rest of the world that your perceptions your understanding of the world through your senses is imperfect itself oh totally yeah i would totally totally admit that i mean we can't thought <laughs> the answer is we can't know because our our knowledge <laughs> is limited, right but totally uh, but plato would say Oh, but we can know. We just have to rely on logic rather than our senses. Right. Right. But what is the logic? Like, you have to have axioms, right? What is the logic, like, stemming from? What is it based on? It's a good question. I think this might be... Like, he's got a good point here, I think, that through logic, through uh, intellectual insight, we, we can grasp true knowledge about our existence but i think it's true that a certain sense we do have to rely on the physical uh, nature of our senses as well Mm -hmm. yeah because there's otherwise (laughs) otherwise what are you what are you basing things on yeah exactly yeah yeah. i mean and and so then then you well I, i guess the only other the only other thing you're left with at that point is you go down the Descartesian exploration of all that you know is that you exist. If you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating thanks for listening concept of Plato's theories of ideas. Um, And what I'd like to talk about now is understanding some of the ramifications that have come from this idea. Because, like I said, this idea is so hugely influential in our modern day, in all of the history that led from Plato to today. You can see these shadows, these influences 
cast out as a result of our species playing with that this idea of uh, accepting it as true or or possibly true. Hmm. How how where where do you see that? So the first most obvious one for me is the concept of heaven in the Christian sense, right? You have this perfect, ideal, other world mirroring our own where everything's just beachy. Um, and that we came from there, we're birthed into the physical world, and then when we die, return to that world. Wow, yeah, I never I never made that connection before, but yeah, you're, you're kind of right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's time... time never stops there you, you don't die everything is eternal yeah and yeah Dang. that's that's basically the plato's world of ideas because you know you could take uh you could take plato's idea in a less extreme sense you could say sure these things exist eternally these concepts exist but they're not in some other parallel world this is actually the argument aristotle made in contradiction to Plato, he says that these ideas are reflected within you. There's something inherently tied to the physical world uh, that that idea is, is, is tied to the object in the physical world. But that's not what Plato believed at all. He had this concept of that every ideal, every idea exists in this perpetual unified world where all ideas exist. So do you think he, do you think he believed that ideas kind of just like what what's the what's the interface between people and ideas like Mm. so are the ideas just like is it like the set of all possible ideas that humanity could ever have and then when someone has a new idea they it it just like gets transmitted through their brain somehow and then it's in the real world, I, I think I think I'm using idea in a more like mm. concrete way than he is. No, I, I think you know, I think yeah, I, th- I think the, that's the exactly word form right. and the word yeah, the word form and the word idea are kind of like interchangeable, right? As far as this, yeah, yeah, yeah. form being like the, the shapes that the ideas take, an idea being like a, mm-hmm. a set of forms that we refer to it, a certain thing as. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're absolutely spot on there. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I, I never thought about it this way before, but obviously you can have combinations of ideas, right? So in this world of ideas, do all the possible combinations of all the possible ideas also exist? <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose so. I, I suppose, I mean, that, that seems to be the logical inference. Yeah. And so this, this concept which sort of could be considered as heaven also seems to maybe mean God. Right. Because, yeah, God God is often talked about in a similar way to how Plato talks about forms. It's this perfect thing that exists in another branch of reality or something, mm-hmm. and it's you you can't you know there's no way for you to get there, and it's very abstract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, similar similar idea. And that it somehow has mysterious influence on our broken physical experience on on this world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, depending on who you talk to, they'll have you know more, more or less concrete ideas about what God is. You know, mm-hmm. anywhere from it's an actual guy sitting uh-huh. somewhere, <laughs> commanding people, or it's just this like you know, uh, uh, 
unconditional love or or something like that mm. like there's there's lots of there's lots of different ways to conceive of god there are um but to me what's so striking is that these ideas of plato's you can see them reflected and carried on and expounded upon by uh, two two thousand years of christianity that followed it mm -hmm. as well as other religions of course the other the other part of this that i see reflected in christianity is the concept of the physical as being imperfect weak uh broken reflection of some ideal pure thing mm -hmm. yeah and that's that provides a a good system for making rules that people aren't allowed to break and punishing them for breaking said rules because it it goes against the perfection that apparently like supposedly exists somewhere else <laughs> yeah and then who gets to <laughs> who, who gets to set those rules right <laughs> yeah yeah um, that's that's a really interesting segue because i think one of the most hugely influential uh parts of this uh, of plato's ideas is his uh republic right have you been have you are you familiar with plato's republic i've read like a chapter or two of it for a philosophy class mm -hmm. but beyond that i'm not i'm not super familiar right so so the, so the republic refers to yes his his writing um but it also refers to this concept of this ideal system of government that he constructed based upon this idea he has of of, of ideas as being eternal um and this 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 society this ideal society that he structured has all these very particular facets about it uh, it's a hierarchical structure there's it's class-based you have a a ruler you have a uh, warrior class and you have the peasantry um, and mm -hmm. everyone's supposedly working knows their place and their job and they're all working together to create a smoothly functioning unit that exists in perpetuity mm -hmm. so how how does that compare to our modern american system of government from what you know mm. so i think not only is a large part of that reflected in our modern system of government but in most governments over the course of history um, mm -hmm. you will see these repeating themes like the idea of hierarchical class systems of knowing your place in those systems um, the specifically having an elite ruler uh, and uh, below them a elite ruling class who more or less get to do whatever they want uh, the only rules that define them there may be some internal rules of like chivalry and honor that guide their actions but in terms of governance there is really no accountability uh, and then that, that government's governance applies for the uh, working class who we do all the work. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> no, for real. <laughs> and so even though in the way our society is currently structured in America, there are no explicit class boundaries, it's put pretty clear that all of these roles are still more or less followed implicitly. Yeah, it's, it's baked into... It's baked into a lot of the the philosophy of you know the people who wrote the the constitution and and all that stuff i think i think directly from 
directly from ancient you know greek and roman society but also just because of the way those ideas filtered into christianity and then mm. christianity also hugely influenced the 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 constitution and all that stuff absolutely i think that part of part of the part of the challenge here is that this ideal this ideal world this ideal society that plato envisioned it still encompasses things like conquering enemies and stuff that's like one of the things he says you specifically need to still be able to do in order to have an ideal society um, mm-hmm. And so baked into it, there is this kind of predisposition for conflict, for war, um, for violence. And I think uh, as a society that has hippies in its past, we sort of naturally shy away from, uh, from this concept. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, we would idealize a world that doesn't have to rely on violence uh, in order to thrive. Right. Do you know? Do you know, Do you know who Steven Pinker is? No, I'm not familiar. He's a he's a writer and and uh, I think he's a he's a professor somewhere. But um, he he has this book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, where he talks about how if you look at if you look at the right metrics, uh, you can see a lot of very encouraging trends in human civilization over the past you know hundred years about how 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 much uh, violence in general has declined, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and how we're in general just becoming less you know i should say more more averse to conflict and mm. and kind of more willing to make compromises and stuff in general and of course people people will debate whether that's a useful observation to make right now at this point in human history or not but yeah i do i do think we have in general become less conflict averse i mean we haven't we haven't seen something like world war Two in you know however long it's been 80 something years not knock on wood for real <laughs> i mean yeah and it, it's it's so hard because you know there's obviously atrocities being continually afflicted all across the the world and inflicted by us in many cases and we're sort Definitely. of blind to it in our little isolated developed world here but um, I mean, it, it's hopeful to think that maybe even all that considered, it's still better than it was a few hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, ob- ob- yeah. There, obviously, there's still a lot of awful shit happening, and the U.S. is instigating a lot of it. So there's mm. there's that. Yeah, for sure. And I think that while I, I'm definitely not going to lay the mantle upon Plato for conceiving of war as being necessary for society i think that existed for thousands of years before plato and it's just something he may have taken for granted um still you can see the the influence of that idea passed through plato even on unto today so i guess maybe the last big thing that i see um the way the way that our society today has been influenced by this platonic ideal is actually parallel to what Ian McGilchrist talks about. We've talked about him in several episodes in the past. Um, uh, just to remind everyone, Ian, Ian McGilchrist is a neuropsychologist who has explored in depth the different qualities between 
the different hemispheres of the brain. And he has a very sophisticated theory about how those qualities uh, influence the actual structure of our society and every aspect of our lives. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting stuff. And he describes a certain what he would describe as a ascendancy of the the left brain. This is the tendency to categorize uh, to break things down into subcategories and sort of uh, ab- abstract notions that imperfectly represent the actual physical experience. You know, this this is actually kind of akin to Plato's idea of the world of ideas perpetually existing and the actual physical experience of our day-to-day lives. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> uh, because uh, one of the fundamental facets about the way the left brain is structured, according to Ian McGilchrist, is that it's highly self-referential. You have these little units of things represented. You know, every concept that you can refer to in your mind, everything that you have an idea of what that thing is, there's some area of the brain that is holding the model of that. Wow. Yeah. There's some, there's some like network of neurons that's getting activated every time you, every time that idea occurs to you. And I think that this, this was a debate and probably still is a debate in neuroscience, but there's this idea of the grandmother neuron that you know, it's in, in in your brain, there is a neuron that represents a specific concept mm. like your grandma. And I think at first it was, it was taken to be kind of, uh, uh, at first it seemed just like a given that that kind of neuron would exist. Mm. Right. And then people thought it was more complicated than that, but I think they've, they've more recently found that actually that it, that is kind of how it works mm. in, um, in human brains and in neural networks, which is which is interesting. That is really interesting. That's uh, that's news to me. I I was under the impression from E.A. McGilchrist's book uh, that that's actually not the case, but that might be dated. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's I think it's still up in the air. We we, we know we know, uh, yeah, we still know so little about neuroscience because the brain is just so ridiculously complex that there's yeah we we've, we've just scratched the surface basically. I think, but. Right. Yeah. Um, it might not be. It might not be one specific neuron, but it is like a, a certain network that gets activated for yeah for a, a specific concept. Yeah, I, I think that that was my understanding of it as well. And so there's there's something timeless about that, right? Each of these concepts that exist within your left brain, they don't really have a sense of persisting in physicality of embodiment. They're just this idea that's existing in perpetuity on its own that that actually shapes uh so much about the structure of our of our world and uh, the world that we build the society that we build um, institutions are constructed so much around distilling things down to their constituent parts their concepts um and I don't know. What do you think about that idea? Like, is that, is that valid? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, to, to make sense of the world, we have to, we have to break it down into the, 
the constituent parts, right? And it reminds me of the Terrence McKenna quote, which I will mention for the upteenth time on this podcast, which is about uh, going to the jungle and being able to see the different kinds of green mm. and how language is, is, is kind of the best way to help you see detail like that. But it's a double-edged sword because it kind of, it gives you the sense that everything is, is uh, separate and discreet and, and not like fuzzy and ill-defined mm. in the way that it actually is. Right. Right. Um, yeah yeah it is such a powerful tool isn't it yeah um, and i think going back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about you know information and everything uh i think a big part of consciousness is making distinctions about the world saying like this is this is one thing this is another thing uh for you know for this reason and i think i think that that kind of ties into to what you were talking about with the you know the way the left brain kind of likes to categorize things yeah. right like that is that is the maybe like the primary way that consciousness interacts with reality hmm. at least for in our, in our from from what we can tell from from the way our brains are manifesting consciousness yeah interesting um and like you said it's a, it's a double-edged sword it's so so powerful and i think the thing we need to watch out for is conflating that model we've built of the world with the world itself. And I think we are guilty of this constantly. Right, right. And not being willing to update our model when we when we get okay. <laughs> a suspicion that it's not accurate. Mm. And so and this is my my main criticism of Plato's ideas, because okay, obviously he's hugely influential these ideas are fascinating and extremely valuable to explore but if you take it too literally i think you you get led astray you get led down some really dark rabbit holes because if, if you assume mm -hmm. that the the world that you have created uh fabricated as an attempt to describe your real experience of the world is the truth and that you're Therefore, the real experience is a lie. Um, it's very easy to lose touch with with reality. Right, right. Yeah, you, you get so used to it that you don't even you forget that there is you know anything else. Yeah. There. Yeah. And, and you see this in Plato, um, in in the history of him, because. He, he sort of makes this mistake on his own because when he's building this ideal platonic uh, republic, this is like, oh, this what, wouldn't it be great if society were structured in all these very particular ways? And if only we could do that, then that would just be so great and it would just exist that way forever. But then he laments, why, why can't it be like that way? Like... And, and 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 what he ends up doing is discounting the physical world he says it's not it's not my idea that's wrong no no it's the physical world <laughs> <laughs> literally all of all of reality is wrong i'm not wrong literally uh, that is that that is what he says and, and so it is, it's it's so funny right? it's like obviously the most arrogant like childish petty uh, spoiled brat sort of thing to say but 
<laughs> and then people say that all of philosophy is just a footnote to Plato. <laughs> yeah, I think they. I guess, I guess he was right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was right. Asterix. So it's only kind of tangentially related to this topic, but I did want to mention this this idea I had recently about about consciousness and, and information and how those those two things interact. So one of the main theories you'll hear when you hear people talking about what consciousness is, is that it's some kind of information processing, right? Mm. The brain is just doing information processing all the time. That's kind of what it's there for. That's what the nervous system does. Um, and somehow I never connected that to the idea that the senses are are perceiving information and the the fact that the senses are basically delineating things about reality you know like different frequencies of light we can tell very in a pretty fine-grained way you know that, that a certain frequency is different from another just by the color right mm. even even just a little bit it's like uh, that's not quite the same color right that's right. that's like pretty easy for a human eye to do right mm. Um, and same thing with sound, like, you know, it's a different pitch. It's this pressure wavelength or whatever. And the, the, the idea that your brain is basically seeing this kind of structure in reality and making these distinctions, the idea that that's what consciousness is like suddenly seemed way more plausible to me. <laughs> the, the con consciousness is literally what information feels like when it's, when it's being, processed and I, again i feel like i'm just saying the same thing that people people say have, yeah i've been saying for a long time but somehow it, it never like hit me in quite that way you know yeah no for sure there's something really different about like having an intellectual idea of of this of, of the the reality of of ideas and then to actually experience that there, there's some there's something yeah. incontrovertible about that experience
Thank you.